Well, we are in the last chapter and last week we focused on this idea of Christ overcoming the world. As John notes there, the world is the enemy that we must overcome. It is the world that draws us away from obeying God and his commands. And instead of obeying God and his commands, the world draws us away to sin. But his encouraging words to us in that portion that we covered last week is that all who are born again and who are of faith finally overcome the world. Those who trust in Christ and are born again have a different relationship with God's law. It is now one in which they love to obey God's law. They prefer it. It is now a love that they have for God's children. They now have a love for God's children and it is proven by their obedience for obedience to that law. So that's what we looked at last week in summary. But having made that point, you may have noticed that John says in the last verse, who is that, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Having made that last point, John moves on to describe this Jesus through whom we have victory over the world. And he does it by unfolding for us, as I mentioned, this whole block, verses 6 to 12, unfolding for us this idea of this testimony concerning Christ. As I've reiterated several times, hopefully not ad nauseum, the reason that John writes in this polemic or, or argumentative fashion is because there are certain individuals who are teaching heresies concerning Christ and ultimately the gospel. These people, of course, were once part of the Johannine community. They were professing believers, but they had removed themselves from that group of believers and now went on to believe and hold to heretical views. John is addressing them in this letter. And because this isn't just a soft mumbling of a few deranged persons who left the church, but more likely a significant number or noticeable number of people who left the church, John writes to bolster the assurance of believers by responding to the claims, the specific claims of the false teachers. Throughout this book, we read things like, if anyone says, or whoever does not, or by this you know. And the reason for this is because John is combating false notions that are circulating among these believers. Our text today is no different. John is emphatic that Jesus, born of Mary, is indeed God come down in the flesh to save men. That's the aim of his teaching in these seven verses, that the testimony that God has come down in the person of Jesus Christ to save men is in fact true. He wants to shut the mouths of the false teachers and equip the saints with confidence about this message that was originally delivered to them. And in particular, reiterate to them that the Jesus they had originally believed in is indeed God come down to save the world. So that's a broad overview of what John's aim is here in verses 6 to 12. And the way John goes about doing this, and more focus on our text, the way John goes about doing this is by first appealing to the truthfulness of three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit. And that will be our focus today as we are going through this sermon. Before we begin though, I just want to address a potential issue in the text. 
because there are various translations, there are different renderings of the text. But the King James Version includes additional words in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7, which do not appear in more modern translations like the ESV, NIV, NIV or NASV. Most modern commentators and scholars agree that the words found in the KJV in verse 7 are not found in the earliest manuscripts. And because of their late inclusion, it is thought that it was inserted here by somebody who didn't have the original text. Unlike the verses in John 8 and the ending of Mark, Mark 16, where there's these parentheses that bracket and say at the bottom with a footnote, well, these verses aren't in the original manuscript. Unlike those which have that note but are still included in our Bible. So there may be some debate about those, whether those are canon. But this one certainly, it is excluded completely. It's not in the ESV. It's not in the NASV. Not in the NIV. And so we are not going to look at that. For those of you who are interested in knowing what the words are, themselves. They read like this, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Those words, as we just read, don't appear in the ESV. But I just draw that out to your attention so you can know if you have a KJV Bible, why we're skipping it over. It's kind of a moot point though, and I am no textual critic because I literally don't have any training in Greek and any of the languages surrounding that time. But it's kind of a moot point because the version of the Bible we use at our church is the ESV. So, I mean, we, we'll just focus on what the ESV says and any other translation we'll just ignore. So, with that said, let's circle back to these three witnesses. So that was just an aside for those who may have the KJV Bible and may not have seen this verse. But with that said, with that aside, in verses 6 and 7, John pens these words. This is he who, come, who came by blood, by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is true. For there are three that testify. So we know that there are three that testify. Literally in the Greek, there are three that bear witness. This is actually where we get the, the English term for martyr. And the idea conveyed here is that there is an abiding witness. That, as you know, someone who dies because they're martyred, die because they hold to a belief, a hold to some body of truth or some doctrine, and they die because they refuse to repudiate or they refuse to deny what they hold to. There's a witness there that is born to the watching world because they hold to that belief. And that's where we get the English word martyr from. But what is it that these three are witnessing to or about specifically? What is the water and the blood witnessing to? Because it says that there are three that testify or three that bear witness. What is it that they are witnessing to? To help us answer this question, let's first look at verse 6 and try to understand more clearly what it means for Jesus to come by water and the blood. 
Remember where we're going. We're trying to determine what it is these three are witnessing to. And we have to cover some necessary terrain in order to get there. So with that in mind, let's consider first what it means for Jesus to come by water. We know that this is one testifier or witness. We said that already. But the question is, what, as I mentioned before, what is it that the water is witnessing to? What does this coming by water highlight in terms of, what, what is it a reference to in terms of the reality of Jesus? Several positions have been posited, and most of them involve some form of rebuttal about the false teaching at the time, which makes sense. For our purposes, it might be helpful to categorize the dominant views in two camps, and they're more than the dominant views that I'm even highlighting that exist in terms of in terms of interpreting this passage. On the one hand, there are those who think that John is trying to explain something that is true about Jesus' humanity. In this view, the water is an appeal to the witness that this bears about Jesus' humanity. In this camp, persons argue either that the water represents a foundational element in the human body, which was one of the thoughts of Jewish persons in ancient times, that water and blood was a foundational element of the human body. So that, that might be what John is thinking of. But there are also others who take this as a description of the natural way in which humans come into the world. Water in this view would relate then to coming by amniotic fluid. So all babies, as you know, are born and amniotic fluid accompanies them in their birth. So that, those are the two views that dominate the thinking in terms of bearing witness to Jesus's humanity. But the above interpretations don't seem to be following the author's train of thought. On the surface, these interpretations may be appealing because John does, does spend a lot of time defending Jesus's humanity in this book. In 1 John chapter 4, we read about John's attack or John's rebuttal against false teachers because he's asking us to test the spirit. He says here about false teachers, calls them antichrist. He says in 1 John chapter 4, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So there is, throughout this book, I just cited one source, there is throughout this book claims that Jesus came from in the flesh from God. There, there are several times in this book John is defending that claim. So it may be appealing that John is making a specific reference when he says, this is he that came by the blood and the water, that he's making a reference to Jesus's humanity. But it doesn't fit squarely with how the text is worded. John says that Jesus came not by water only, but by water and the blood. It seems from the text that he's granting to his opponents, the false teachers, that Jesus did in fact come by water. It's like if you were responding to a Jehovah Witness in a 
conversation about Jesus or an argument about Jesus, the identity of Jesus. And they were telling you about who Jesus was and that he was the Messiah. You would say to them, yes, but Jesus wasn't only the Messiah. He also was the Son of God. So you grant for the sake of argument that Jesus is the Messiah. Like, the Jehovah Witnesses haven't gotten that wrong in that sense. They rightly characterize or rightly identify the Jesus in the scripture. They would quote you a King James Version text and say, that Jesus is the Messiah. And you would grant that point for the sake of argument. But you are not granting the claim that the Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus is a created being. In fact, you're doing the very opposite. When you say that, yes, but he isn't only the Messiah, he is God in the flesh, you're going further and also saying, well, he's also the Son of God. He's divine in his nature. So something similar is going on in this passage. Commenting on this passage, Colin Cruz has this to say about our text. In this verse, the author indicates the difference between his view and theirs, meaning the false teachers. The text indicates two things. What was not in dispute, namely that Jesus came by water, and what was in dispute, that Jesus came by water and the blood. The blood was the part that was in dispute. If John, in fact, does agree with the false teachers that Jesus came by water, then the point can't relate to Jesus being a human because the false teachers did not agree with this point. So it could never be a point of agreement. By way of reminder, we've seen time and time again that this group of false teachers that John addresses were likely docetists. They believed that Jesus' bodily appearance was just that, a bodily appearance. And John writes most notably in chapter 4, which we described already, that those who say that Jesus didn't come in the flesh are not of God. They are in fact antichrist. So if we grant on the one hand that John's use of the term not by water only suggests some agreement with the, false, with the claims of the docetists, we can't equally grant on the other hand that coming by water suggests something about Jesus' humanity. A docetist would never agree to that, and the Apostle John knows that. So in summary, we take, if we take the use of the words not by water only to relate to things which were not in dispute, it can't refer to something that was in dispute, namely Jesus' humanity. So we've spent a, bit, a little bit of time talking about what the term is likely not to mean, if you realize. I haven't... I've, did the very opposite. I haven't told you what it does mean. So, but the question should be asked of me: What does the term mean? The first, this I, I mentioned one way, but the second dominant way of interpreting this phrase links it to baptism. As you may know by now, the Gospel of John was written by the same John who authored this epistle, and thankfully. This same Greek term for by water is used in the Gospel of John, specifically with reference to John's baptizing ministry. In John chapter 1 and verse 26, we read that John the Baptist baptizes with water. That could be translated by water. Same Greek term. And in verses 31 and 33, we have the same Greek term being, being read. 
given the Apostle John restricts the use of this term to baptism in the active ministry of John the Baptist, it doesn't seem appropriate to interpret this verse as relating to Jesus being baptized because that would be a passive action. The way the Greek term is used suggests an active action, as in not something that someone experiences because we would never read John chapter 1 and think John the Baptist was being baptized. We would read John chapter 1 and, and, read, and read something like John came baptizing as John was the one doing the baptism. So we shouldn't read this text to mean that it relates to Jesus being baptized, which is actually one type of interpretation of the verse. But I'm trying to get you settled on the view that I have taken. So I'm just exposing you to the breadth of dominant views. So with that being said, the most consistent way, and I'm getting to the point of telling you what I think it is, the most consistent way to interpret this verse is to understand that it relates to Jesus's ministry of baptism. Of course, you may immediately respond to that and say, well, Jesus never had a ministry of baptism because Jesus didn't baptize anybody. But we know from the Gospel of John that while only Jesus' disciples baptized, everyone thought that it was his baptism. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 25 and 26. Let's turn there quickly just to read that portion. John chapter 3 verses 25 and 26. It says this. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going out to him. Yet in the following chapter, that is chapter 4, we read this from verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, John gives us this explanatory note saying that Jesus was not the one who baptized. It is evident though that everyone in that time so associated the baptism with Jesus that the Apostle John actually has to say, wait, hold up. Even though I'm saying that Jesus had a ministry of baptism, even though that is how it's perceived at the time, even though in history that's how everyone would have thought of it when we talk about Jesus's baptism or Jesus's ministry of baptism, he says, wait, hold up. Just to set the record straight, just so we have history straight, Jesus himself didn't baptize anyone. So, by writing in narrative form that Jesus was baptized, and John isn't contradicting himself, as he isn't speaking technically. Rather, he is simply reporting a conversation between John the Baptist and his disciple. But don't miss the point. The point is that it was so common for the people of that day to speak of baptisms done by Jesus, his disciples. It was so common in that day for people to speak of baptisms done by Jesus' disciples as if they had been done by Jesus himself. It's the same thing, like if you casually were speaking to a friend and said, I don't know why Mark Maloney put this building right here. Well, did Mark Maloney build a building? No. 
he, prob he probably wasn't even there when it was being built. The point is that the, the construction of that building, all of the workers with that building, are so associated with Mark Maloney that it could be said to be Mark Maloney himself that built the building. So that's the sense in which John is writing. So I hope you're following so far. The view that Jesus coming by water is this. It's a reference to his baptizing ministry. That view seems to hold the most credit out of all the ones that we've looked at so far. And I haven't even espoused all of them. Some of them are far left, like the Roman Catholic views on this verse that we haven't even discussed. But those aren't useful for our conversation because those are really outside the realm of orthodoxy. So that's, that's, the, that's the view that holds the most credit. It accounts for the fact that John's style of writing appears to be granting some agreement to his opponents. The Docetus, it takes into account the active use of the term used by John in the Gospels when he uses the term baptizing with wa by water or uh, coming baptizing by water. And it also takes into account the use of, well, it takes into account the, the former use of the term in John's own writing. So this is John, this is how John understands the term by water or coming by water. So that's that's the that's the reason why that view has the most weight or is the most credible. So John speaks to the first witness or the first testifier to Jesus as being his baptizing ministry. This particular act serves to identify Jesus himself. Many knew who this Jesus was through his ministry of baptism. And so anyone who hears of it would automatically think, yeah, that's Jesus that you're talking about. John seeks to identify the Messiah by appealing to this witness or this one that testifies. But we aren't to think that this witness functions something like someone who is saying something concerning another in a courtroom. This witness functions more like how we would talk about the heavens declaring the glory of God. We don't literally see the stars twinkling in such a way and they write the words, the heavens declare the glory of God. Like We don't literally see that. That doesn't happen. But indirectly, they reveal the majesty of the Creator. And similarly, the witness of the the water or the witness of John's of Jesus's baptizing ministries part of me is a witness that easily identifies who he is he is the Messiah everyone knew him as Messiah and John conceives the fact yes this historical figure you know of who came by water meaning came baptizing or had a baptizing ministry yes I know you know him and I know you're referring to that guy so that's how, he, that's how he starts his witness. There is a witness of Jesus' baptizing ministry to who he is as the Messiah. So we have covered that sufficiently, but it's obvious the apostle isn't content to simply agree with a false teacher. If all you did after you spoke with a Jehovah witness is simply agree with them, you should probably consider whether you yourself are a Jehovah's Witness. So, 
John's aim isn't simply to say, yeah, yeah, yeah we, we agree, yeah, I understand who we're talking about. No, that's, that's not John's point at all. John adds to his comments in verse 6 that Jesus didn't come by water only, but by the blood. And this statement is almost unanimously taken to be a reference to Jesus' death by which he made an atoning sacrifice for sins. So the second witness points to the reality that Jesus, the Son of God, died by crucifixion for the sins of man. And of course, as we mentioned before, this was a point of dispute as it directly confronts the Docetist beliefs. How could someone who is merely a mirage or who merely appears, who has no corporeal existence, no material existence, die? That's impossible in a Docetist view. In the mind of the Docetist, the Apostle John would have to be lying. His words can't be credible. The lowercase God of the Docetists may have been too powerful to undergo such a weak and shameful death. Or perhaps it was thought that it was unnecessary. I'm not sure what the thinking was that led the Docetists to believe that Jesus couldn't have a bodily existence. I don't know what underpinned that, what presuppositions did. But that's largely a moot point. John's message here is that if you want to know who Jesus is, you can't simply agree that he was known to be a baptizer. You also have to agree to the crucial tenets of the gospel. In this case, he refers specifically to the fact that Jesus had condescended, took the form of a man, and as a man suffered the painful and shameful death of crucifixion. If you were a Jew living in Jerusalem around 60 AD or 90 AD, which is the time of the writing of this letter, and someone began to talk to you about this one who was beaten and flogged unjustly by the Romans and then had to carry a cross and was crucified between two thieves, who would you think of? You would think of Jesus. But John doesn't present Jesus as some victim of a heinous crime. The reason I went through the use of the Greek term before was also to strengthen this point. As we saw in the verses before, Jesus is the one who has overcome the world and all who have faith overcome in him. The author presents the, active, the same active words used to describe Jesus coming by water to describe Jesus coming by the blood. Jesus is the one who lays down his life. It isn't taken from him. It isn't something that simply happened to him like a bad accident. Some tragedy didn't befall Jesus. Jesus made a purposeful decision to go to the cross to die for sinners. This is important because some commentators think that Docetists didn't want to embrace the Jesus of Scripture because they thought it exposed an ultimate weakness in God. How could God die? How could God be shamed? How could God experience weakness? Being overcome by death itself would expose all of these things. But this was the very means Jesus uses to disarm the powers of hell and makes a way that sinners may be reconciled to God. That was the very means. The means that people look at as being weak and foolish, as being shameful, that was the very means that Christ chose to operate in, to do, to fulfill, to accomplish in order to bring about salvation for men. 
though perhaps many of our day are not docetous, I would ask any unbelievers who are listening, it is possible and a tragic reality that many will experience some knowledge of Jesus, but rationalize away key tenets of the gospel, such as the death of Christ. Unbeliever, I tell you with some burden on my heart that to misunderstand who Jesus is will imperil your soul forever. We haven't gotten to this point yet in the text. We'll look at it later, but don't miss that all-important witness concerning Jesus. God himself took on flesh and became a man. He lived on earth with the purpose of living a perfect life, the life that we could never live. We are all guilty before God because of our sin. Christians and non-Christians alike have committed sin. So what's the difference? Do you think that Christians will be appearing on Judgment Day because they have committed less sin? One sin would indict you. Anyone who's warning Adam will go to hell for Adam's one sin. How much you sin doesn't matter. It is very much possible for a non-believer to have committed relatively less sin in his life than a Christian. That is very much possible. So what's the difference? The difference is the atoning work that Jesus provides for one and not the other. I urge you, unbeliever, take shelter under the atoning blood of Christ to save you from your sins. Entrust yourself to him. And know that when you trust the atoning work of Christ, what he did on the cross on your behalf, that you yourself, after you trust yourself to him, that you yourself are a recipient of eternal life. There are also some words of application here for believers as well, as it literally, this letter literally is written for them. But before we go there, let's just summarize what we've covered so far and then cover this last witness because I said there are three. We only covered two, the water, the blood. So let's summarize. We spent some time trying to understand what it means for Jesus to come by water and the blood. As these are called witnesses or testifiers to Jesus. We spent time unpacking that. And as we did that, we know that it is most likely that coming by blood refers to Jesus' baptizing ministry. And that coming by blood refers to his atoning work on the cross. Both of these evidences or witnesses point us to the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the one who was known to have a baptizing ministry among the Jews at that time. And the one who had died for the sins of the world. With that recap in mind, now let's look at the role of the Spirit as a witness. If you read through the Gospel of John, you may know that the role of the Spirit is written about in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. John describes the role of the Spirit as one of bearing testimony or bearing witness to Jesus. We know from that gospel that the Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove, providing validation concerning his identity. The Spirit descended and the Father's voice was, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the Spirit validates, the Spirit testifies to the reality 
that Jesus is the Son of God. But more than that, brethren, the Spirit actively works to convince men of the truth of who Jesus is even to this day. The ministry of the Spirit is more than simply moving the authors of the Bible to write down his words. There's a sense in which every time the gospel is preached, every time the gospel is believed, there's a witness, there's a testimony of the Spirit that is believed and received. Stephen accused the Jews in the book of Acts in chapter 7 of always resisting the Holy Spirit. We didn't see anything written about the Holy Spirit booming a voice at that time saying something to the Sanhedrin or the Jews that Stephen stood before. So what were they resisting? They were resisting the testimony that Stephen bore concerning Jesus. And more ultimately, which is the point of the text in Acts, they were resisting the testimony of the Spirit that was brought to them through that message. It's important then for us to know the scriptural understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. It primarily relates to pointing people to Jesus. There's a real sense in which the Bible is centered solely upon the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. People who name their churches Miracle Center or Prophetic Word Ministries or whatever other thing like that do not appreciate that the Spirit's role in redemptive history primarily relates to pointing people to who Jesus is. Within the charismatic movement, there's an unhealthy obsession with the Spirit and His so-called ministry through the operation of spiritual gifts in the church. As we read here, and as we hear from the mouth of Jesus Himself, the Spirit's role is to make much of Him. Where you have Spirit-filled people, you have Jesus making much of people. That, that is the point that John is, is making. The Spirit testifies. The Spirit bears witness. What does he bear witness to? The reality of who Jesus is. It's in this way that the, Spirit test, the Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus agrees with the water and the blood. The Spirit confirms the validity and truthfulness of these two testifiers and works to persuade men to receive or believe this testimony. At this point, when you hear John pulling out a statement like the Spirit is truth, you should take that to mean that this is an open and shut case. God is the only arbiter of truth. Ultimately, only God decides what is true and what is false. Ultimately. The ultimate court is not the Supreme Court, it's not some court up at the UN. The ultimate arbiter, the ultimate person, the ultimate decision-making body or authority that has the ability to actually say what is true or what is not true is ultimately God. So John pulls up this trump card and uses it like almost like when you're arguing with your Christian brother and you slam a Bible verse that's aptly relating to that particular context or that particular conversation. From your perspective, after you said that Bible verse to them, the case is closed. In a very similar vein, 
John pulls out his trump card, as it were, and says, The Spirit has testified to these facts concerning Jesus, and they're incontrovertible. He is the truth. And so arguments to the contrary are by definition false. That's the sense of what John is saying. So most commentators agree that John's statement that the three testified in in verse 7 or verse 8, 7, in verse 7, thanks for In verse 7, relate primarily to this courtroom setting. In the Old Testament, when a case had to be heard, it was determined by two or three witnesses. John is appealing to one, appealing to another, and then going to a third and saying, look, I have a credible case. Look at Jesus' baptizing ministry to authenticate his identity. But more than that, since, since he and the Gossipists agree with that, more than that, look at his atoning work on the cross. Look at he who died at Calvary and came up from the grave. Look at that to authenticate who Jesus is. But the third one is, look at the ministry. Look at the testimony of the Spirit. He who bears witness to Jesus, he who descended upon him like a dove, that person, that third person of the Trinity also bears witness to who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God come down to save men. And there are three witnesses who appear in the courtroom of God's tribunal to testify to the identity of the Messiah. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. Those three testify and bear witness. And their testimony agrees. Our application tonight is so simple. So simple. And I figure you probably already know what it is. But that's okay. I'm not going to feel bad that I'm spoiled. Spoiled. Believe and be confident in the testimony borne by these three witnesses. There's much obscurity that is in the world because of philosophy and religion concerning Jesus. There's much obscurity concerning him. There's the Jesus of the Muslims. There's the Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses. There's so many Jesuses. There's the Jesus of the Christian scientists and so on. I could go on and on and on. But do not be removed from the simple faith I know you all have in Christ. In fact, I would urge you as, an, as a point of application to deepen your knowledge of him. Honor the spirit by learning more of his testimony concerning Jesus. John did not write because he thought believers would apostatize. He writes to further affirm and confirm the very message these believers heard from the beginning. Brethren, he wants them to stay near to the Jesus who died on the cross. Trust the validity and efficacy of the Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus. I urge you, similar to what John is doing to this little church, to stay near to Christ. And obviously we don't mean corporeally. We don't mean bodily. We don't mean that. Stay near to Christ. Have him in mind and in heart. Draw close to him that he may draw close to you, is what I'm saying. God has mercifully given us silent witnesses and the active ministry of the Spirit to testify to these things and confirm them for us. 